Peter and John were going to the temple one afternoon to pray when they saw a man who had never been able to walk in his whole life. Each day, the man sat at the temple gate begging people for money. Can you spare any money for a poor man who can't walk? I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I have something even better. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Peter helped the man stand up. As he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed. The man began walking, leaping, and praising God. When the people saw this, they were amazed. People of Israel, why are you so surprised? Why are you staring at us as though we did this all by ourselves? God did this so that everyone can know the power of his son, Jesus. Many people believed what Peter and John said, and they decided to become followers of Jesus too. Some Jewish leaders became bothered by Peter and John's teaching. They arrested Peter and John and had them put in jail until morning. The next day, they brought Peter and John to a large group of the men who ruled the whole kingdom. Even the high priest was there. By what power or in whose name did you heal that man? Rulers and elders of our people, are you holding us captive and asking us these questions because we've healed a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me be clear. The powerful name of Jesus healed this man. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Believing in Jesus and following him is the only way to be saved. There is no other way. The rulers were amazed by Peter and John's boldness. They knew Peter and John had been with Jesus. And since everyone could see with their own eyes that the man who couldn't walk was now healed, there was nothing they could do. Still, they tried to find a way to stop Peter and John. Fine, we will let you go, but you aren't allowed to ever speak or teach about Jesus ever again. But Peter and John refused. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? No way. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council tried to scare Peter and John into staying quiet about Jesus, but it didn't work. Finally, they let Peter and John go. They couldn't punish them without making the crowd angry. After all, everyone was praising God for healing a man who had never been able to walk. Amen. Kids, uh, if you've not all gone, well, you're gone. So, right? Yeah, they're gone. Okay. Man, they'll have a great time. Hey, uh, you need to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're continuing this story we've been talking about. Um, but I want to give you a little background. Um, I actually, when I was planning out this whole sermon series, which you know it's about 12 or 13 weeks, and we've even extended it, um, I was looking last week at Acts 4, 1 through 12, which we talked about, and then we were going to skip and we were going to hit Acts 4, starting in verse 23 and reading through uh, 37. And then uh, the week that David Nelms was here to, to preach, before that I was working on this and kind of putting this outline together for chapter 4, verse 23. And so I thought, well, I better go back and read the rest of chapter 4, make sure, uh, you know, where it's going here. And I read 13 through 20, and I thought, why in the world are we not doing a sermon teaching on 13 through 20? I mean, this is a powerful little section here of Scripture. So I said, hey, um, you know, we're in control, so we'll just add another Sunday, and we'll do it this Sunday. But then I got this Monday to working through and I'm telling you, I couldn't get past verse 13. I, I was so kind of impacted by what was being said 
in verse 13 and really how it creates a parallel for us today that I, I got completely holed up in that, in that one verse. And so you'll see on the top of your page, it says chapter 4, 13 through 20, but you only see one verse. So we're going to now take a section of Scripture that we weren't even going to do in the original uh, sermon series, and we're going to do two weeks uh, on that section. So that's just how it goes, okay? So we're going to look at verse 13 today, and I'm telling you, I think you're going to see maybe even a foundational message that's coming out that you will see carried out with the disciples the rest of the book of Acts. You've probably already seen it carried out to some degree. So Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we'll get to that in just a minute. Let me remind you, the great theme of the book of Acts is the coming of Christian power and its building of the Christian church. And this power is the Holy Spirit, and the building of the church happens through the manifestation of that spirit in the life of who? The believers. That's right. The believers, the followers, which means you and I fit into this camp as well today. If you have any hope of people in your life, your friends, your families, your co-workers, anyone who's far from God, if you have any hope of them coming to know them, if we follow this example of Acts, it means you are going to participate with the Holy Spirit in sharing Jesus with them and inviting them to be followers of Jesus. That may entail inviting them to church too. I hope you do. But it's more, it's broader than that. It's you inviting them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we'll talk more about that as we get going. Quick recap you saw in the video, so I'll be brief. Chapter 3, Peter and John are going into the temple at the, the time of prayer, which is actually the time of giving, if you remember, Great time for this man to be sitting at the temple gates asking for money. Peter and John say, hey, look, we don't have any extra money to give you. But what we do have is even better, and they bring healing to him. We find out later in chapter 3, the man accompanies them into the temple. He's praising God and proclaiming God's name. We actually even get this, uh, depending on your translations, this jumping around. You might say he was dancing uh, in the temple uh, as well. And that prompted the people to go, what is going on here? And so Peter launches into one of his sermons or teachings or speeches that he gives to tell the people about Jesus. Then the religious leaders, they get a hold of this and they go like, what is going on here? It's late in the day. They throw him in prison. They deal with it the next day. They say, by what authority, what name are you doing this in? And what is this prompt in Peter? Another opportunity to give a sermon, a teaching, a speech to now tell the religious leaders about Jesus. Can you see how often Peter is leveraging opportunities to share about Jesus? And it brings us to now the reaction of the religious leaders, what we find here. They have a reaction. They come up with what they think is a compromise. We'll talk about that next week. But let's just jump into it and read this. Chapter 4, verse 13. I think you've gotten plenty of time to get there now. Let's take a look at it. One verse that's impactful. It says this. The council, now let me pause. The council, uh, I know some of you are like, oh man, he's pausing already. This is the group of religious leaders, okay? Um, your translation might say the Sanhedrin. So this is a collection of re religious leaders who had authority and power in the Jewish religious system, but also they had been given some authority and power by the Roman Empire as well. As long as you don't kind of cause a problem for the, for the empire, then we don't want to stand in the way of your religious beliefs. So this is a powerful group 
that he's talking to. All right, back to it. The council was caught by surprise by the confidence with which Peter and John spoke. After all, they understood that these apostles were uneducated and inexperienced. They also recognized that they had been followers of Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Man, you're getting there. So proud of you. Oh. Yeah, so we get this, this neat little verse here about this kind of interaction that Luke is recording. We start to get the response of the religious leaders of the time. So here's what I want you to know overarching, and then we'll just, we'll just talk through it this morning. It's this. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are not the same thing. Knowing about him and knowing him, not the same thing. And we're going to actually see this because already the religious leaders knew about Jesus to some degree. We get some of them asking questions, but they had this understanding or at least what they thought was the most understanding they needed to know. But then we get these disciples here, Peter and John, who knew Jesus. And you can compare and contrast them on your own. You can look at the difference in how they respond to situations and what their words are. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, not the same. Is that impactful for you this morning? For you to just take away that on your own? Let's look at this verse again. It says, the council was caught by surprise. Can I stop at that one there? Caught by surprise with the confidence with which Peter and John spoke. The mazo is the Greek word there, because I know you love uh, all your Greek. So that's the word, and this is what it means, though. Marvel or awe. You know what we're talking about when you're like, man, I'm in so much awe of this. Why well, just marveling? This is amazing. But it's even further. What it actually means is to marvel, but without understanding. Now, think about, have you ever had anything you just absolutely marveled at, but you couldn't explain it, you didn't understand it? You might have even seen it over and over and gone like, I don't even understand what I just saw. You're in such amazement. Now, if you're a sports fan, then you will know there's a phrase that is overused several times in almost every sporting event you will ever watch. When somebody does something, the announcer feels like they need to say, that is an unbelievable play. That was an unbelievable performance today. In reality, I mean, we've all seen enough sporting events, right? We look at it and go, no, it's believable. I've seen it, you know. We see, I don't know, a bunch of touchdowns every Sunday. It's not really unbelievable. So, right? Overplayed. But this word actually means that. That's what it actually means. So like a few weeks ago, I was watching a baseball game, you know. I mean, you know I don't watch those often. But I was happened to be watching it that, that night. And a pitcher threw a pitch to home. The batter hit it. It was coming at him. He threw himself out of the way to not get hit. His arm went up like this, and the ball went right in his glove. He turned and threw the ball to second and went on to first. He had two outs before he knew it. And I saw that and went, how did that happen? And so it was on YouTube, so I was able to go back and watch it several times. And even after watching it two or three times, I couldn't quite comprehend how the ball found its way in the glove. You spin, it's, your, it's the back of your palm. The glove's not open. I don't know how it happened. That is what this word means. So they looked at this. They looked at Peter and John. They listened to what they said and, and went, we're amazed. We don't even understand what's going on here. You could say that was their thinking of Peter and John. It was probably really low. And they're amazed without understanding. It goes further. After all, they understand that these apostles were, get this, uneducated, 
and uninspired, or, in, or inexperienced, excuse me, uneducated and inexperienced. Now, they were probably educated in some areas. They were experienced. They probably knew more about fishing than these religious leaders, you know. Some of them came from that, you know. So, but what they're meaning is in the way of speaking in these religious terms, they're uneducated, they're inexperienced. So I was kind of interested because when we think of uneducated, we might think, hey, they don't know it yet, but we'll teach it to them. We'll have them get in a training class, and they'll learn how to work that computer system, or they'll learn how to do something, right? We'll educate them. So I looked at this word, and it's actually this. <laughs> You'll love this. In Greek, it actually is this word, idiotes. That's the Greek word for it. Does that sound similar to any word you might know, right? Yeah, the word you're thinking of is correct. It is where we eventually get the English word idiot from. That's what they're being called. Uneducated, inexperienced. They're saying, these guys are a bunch of idiots. This is what it actually means. Not capable of learning. That's like the, the actual definition. I realize slang-wise, we use it in all different ways. So they're looking at these guys. We are amazed. I can't even believe what they're doing because we thought these guys were a bunch of idiots. We thought they weren't even capable of ever getting to this level in their religious understanding to speak this way. That's how they're looking at them. But then a pretty neat statement. It says at the end, they also recognize, that's a but statement, right? That is, but they recognized that they had been followers of Jesus. Or maybe your translation says they had been with Jesus. So they're looking at these guys and saying, um, we're amazed we don't have understanding. We thought they were a bunch of idiots and not capable of it. But we recognize they had been with Jesus. Now, that's a, that verb in there is a to be verb, to be. And it's plural, so it's we. And it actually literally translated is we exist. There is a togetherness in this word that's being used here. So if I were to be like this, if I were to say, like, I hadn't seen Pastor Anson in years, and we ran into each other on the street, you know, and I said, hey, how are you? He said, hey, how are you? How's the fam? Good. The family's good. All right. Well, have a good day. You know, we moved along. Like, I wouldn't use this word here because it wouldn't quite capture what he's talking about here. It wouldn't be a we exist. It would be more of a, yeah, we're friends. We ran into each other kind of thing. But if we're like, hey, Anson, Deborah, they're going to move in to my house and live in one of our rooms. Like, I'm not offering, okay? I mean, if we need to talk about it afterwards, we will. But, uh, but if, that were, if they were to move into my house and live in my house with me, I would use this kind of word. We exist. This togetherness. So here's what they're saying. We're amazed. We have no understanding. We have no words to explain this. We thought they were a bunch of idiots, not even capable of speaking and knowledge uh, of such a thing. But we, we recognize that they were actually together doing life with Jesus. Listen, that is an amazing, powerful verse that's being shared there. And when I was reading that on my own, I know I'm like, I'm your pastor. I'm supposed to, you know, keep myself up here, whatever that actually means. I don't know. But in reality, that was a humbling passage for me to read it that way. And, like, you don't get in my head throughout the week, or you don't get in my head five minutes after I finish teaching. You know, for those of you who have ever been in ministry, you understand this thinking. When you finish and you walk again and go, well, that was terrible. Never going to do that again. 
And then you go and by 2 o'clock you're starting to write the message or the next five messages because you're like, I've got to really, you know, do something better. The way I think in my head sometimes about my own ability and my own, uh, you know, just talent or whatever, skill set. And then I read a passage like this that says, you know, here were the disciples who I know their names really well, Peter and John. And you know what they were viewed at? They were viewed as, I don't even think they could ever do that. They're idiots. And yet they were with Jesus. And so I think even for me, there's tremendous hope as a pastor. And there's tremendous hope for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. So I looked then and I asked this question. Maybe you've already asked it in your head. What did it look like for the disciples to be with Jesus? Like, what did that look like? I don't know. You probably could come up with a long list. Let me share with you a couple things that came to mind. When we think of the disciples with Jesus, they lived daily with him. When Jesus went and he called them away from what they were doing to be followers of him, he did not say, hey, Peter, I got a great idea. Come follow me. We're going to meet Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. We'll go for about an hour and a half. We'll do a little light meal, and then, you know, we'll hang out, and then you can kind of go back. And, and I know you might have to miss a few weeks. That's okay. We all do. But that's, that's not what following Jesus meant. They left everything and spent every moment following Jesus, or being with him, doing life entirely with him. That's what it looked like. In fact, there was a time where Jesus spoke some really, really hard words to his closest followers. This large group that was known as disciples, not just the 12. Spoke some really hard words. And you know what happened? The Bible tells us many deserted him. Many said, not what I signed up for. I'm out of here. And then look at the passage. John chapter 6, Jesus asked the 12, those are the ones he chose, do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are God's holy one. Listen, Peter isn't saying we got nowhere to go. He's got a boat still. He can go back and fish, right? No problem. He can pick up where he left off. What is he saying? You are the only one worthy of following What we're looking for, there's no one else that's going to offer this. They knew who the religious leaders were, right? Some of them were disciples of John the Baptist even. They followed Jesus and knew that there there was no one else to follow. Listen, I don't know how you feel in your life, but sometimes before I even catch myself, I put my faith and hope in different things. And I'm kind of like following those things for this short period And have to get course corrected back to saying, no, Jesus is the one worthy to follow and to walk in the shoes of. That's what he's saying there. And remember, when he says eternal life here, the Jewish understanding is not just heaven. We're going to get to heaven one day. Follow Jesus and the reward at the end. Oh, man, I can't stand following this guy. Well, just follow him because in the end you're going to get heaven. That's not what he meant. They meant life, fullness of life. Right away. That means even in the midst of some of the persecution we started talking about last week, they found this fullness of life following Jesus. So they followed him daily. They were trained by him. You notice, uh, if you read the Gospels, over and over there was these times where Jesus set them down and he spoke to them. Sometimes in parable, teaching them sometimes. Sometimes it was a correction. You know, steer them back on the right track. But he's training them and lifting them up. And then this third thing, he sent them out. Did you know this happened? 
in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus actually took the 72, that was a larger group of disciples, two by two, and he sent them out and he said, hey, go out and you're going to minister in different places before I get to those towns. Now, you might think, hey, I mean, they're the disciples. They've been trained by Jesus. Look back and read chapter 10. You will see this is very, very early on in the disciples' time with Jesus. It's not like Jesus said, hey, I got three full years with you. We live together every day. We kind of trained you up. You're ready to go now. You know, you're like the spiritual Jedi masters. You can go out now. This is early on, and he sends them out. They've got to be freaked out to go. And they were cold turkey. They were just going into towns and starting to share about the Messiah coming. And do you know how I know that people freak out on that? It's because every disciple class we lead, about the third or fourth lesson, depending on how fast it's going, you have to start writing out your story of how God transformed your life. And you know what the action point always is? Go this week and tell somebody in your life. Find somebody that doesn't know Jesus and go tell them your story. And I can see it every time, just the look of panic on people's faces. Some of you guys are in those discipleship class, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The panic, because we're going to go out now. But you know, the disciples did that. Jesus sent people out. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, it's been awesome to be together. But you also got to go out and share this with others. This isn't just about us hanging out in a little huddle here. It took me to the second question. Maybe you're already there. How can we be with Jesus? What does that look like for us today? Physically, we're not going to walk around with Jesus the same way disciples did. So what does that look like? I promise you, none of these four I'm going to share with you are anything new. You'll have heard them a hundred times by pastors. You'll have heard them from, from, wow, in any way, shape, and form, little devotions, sermons, whatever. But these are the basic reminders. Here's the first. Get into God's word every day. This is how we live with God daily. We get into his word every day. We spend time with him. Is there a a danger that every once in a while somebody turns this idea of every day into a legalistic thing for their own life? Every once in a while it happens. But it's more often the other side where it's not happening. It's not getting done. And when you start to do it, God starts to open up his voice or you hear his voice in a way you didn't before. Listen to how Paul writes in 2 Timothy. Every scripture is inspired by God. It's useful for, listen, teaching. We need teaching. We're doing that this morning. For showing mistakes. Mm, We don't like that as much, right? For correcting. Mm, I don't know if I even like that. And for training character to transform us into something different. Every bit of God's word is useful in that. So the scripture, what that verse is saying is the scripture has what you need if we would plug in. But we don't do it often. Sometimes, even as Christians, we get into this, uh, this mode where we're arguing for the scriptures. It shows up in political realms and things like that. We're arguing things like, ah, oh, when they took prayer out of school or, you know, when... Uh, Uh, The world just doesn't care for biblical values anymore. Now, I would agree with those things. I I would agree with those are problems. But yet then we're not in the word of God ourselves every day. Does that make a lot of sense to you to argue on one side and yet not get in God's word daily ourselves for own growth? And so the challenge is to get in God's word every day. That's how we can be with God. 
Now, sometimes we'll hear a statement. It'll, it'll go something like this. Somebody will say, man, I really like when he or she preaches because it just, man, they just really make the word of God come to life, right? And I understand what you're saying. But in reality, no man or woman brings the word of God to life. The word of, of God is a living word. It is life in itself, what it offers, the word of God. In fact, sometimes I think, this is a theory, so sometimes I think that when we're not in God's word regularly on our own, we are looking for something from a preacher or teacher because we're not getting it on our own. We're looking for them to do something to, quote, unquote, bring it to life for us because we're not engaged in it on our own. But I'm convinced those who are plugged into God's word daily on their own they're feeding themselves and learning things. They don't have all the understanding. They may, have, they may go away with more questions that they read than the answers. But I'm convinced they look for something different from their pastors and preachers when they come. Because they're engaging already with God's word. That's how we spend time with God. Now, we've challenged each other in the past. We've talked about this. Instead of saying, hey, I didn't have time this week. I had a busy week. You, you have to say the phrase, I didn't make it a priority. Do you ever do that, discipline that in, in, in some areas? And say, instead of saying, that's too expensive. I don't have the money. You'd say, I don't prioritize to spend my money that way. It kind of refocuses us when we use the phrase, I didn't prioritize it. I want to encourage you to use one more phrase this week when you're talking about Scripture. Instead of saying, I didn't have time this week, say, uh, I didn't make it a priority this week. But I want to ask you to add one more thing. Then add in this. Instead, I made these things a priority. And list out the things. Now, some of you are, are, are quick-witted. And right away, you're like, yeah, my family, my job, you know, <laughs> cooking the meals, uh, mowing the grass, you know. Tom, do you really want me to not spend time with my family or go to my job or get the grass mowed? You know that's not what I'm talking about. Go a little further on the list. Make sure you get down to the TVs and the Netflix and the Facebooks and our hobbies and whatever else, you know, like, like we, you and I fill up our schedule with and tell ourselves, I have prioritized these over spending some time with God and his word. The second is just simply get to church every week. Getting to church. I've been doing a study for uh, several months now um, on the word uh, ecclesia, which is actually the word for church in the Bible. Um, and it means gathering. It's not a word that is, it wasn't created for, for Christianity or for the church. Um, but the church has kind of hijacked that word and taken that word to mean their gathering. But this is what the word actually means. It doesn't just mean, hey, the get together on Sunday morning. It, it actually means this. The, there was a kaleo, which is actually the caller. And they would call to gather. Call out, hey, we are gathering. Come, be together. And then there was the gathering time, which was the ecclesia time. That was when they gathered together. And there's all kinds of reasons why people would gather, where a kaleo would call out and a collection would come together. But in the New Testament, what we see is the church owns this concept. And when they come together in ecclesia, when they call it the Christian church, there is this, this teaching about how to live out the Christian faith. And then go do it. That's what it was centered around. We get only one verse about singing. Did you know that? We get no verses about kids' ministries and youth ministries. And listen, I'm sorry to say, there's nothing, no mention about donuts and coffee either. So, like, what? <laughs> what? 
You know, maybe I don't know my Greek well enough. Maybe it's in there. I don't know. But there's always, you can see in the New Testament, when the church uses this term, there is this explanation of how to live out the Christian faith and then sending people out to do it. That is ecclesia in the Christian world. So can you see how we sometimes take this term and like, hey, I can't make it this morning. I'll watch it later in the week. That we're kind of devaluing what the Christian church valued to such a high level. The call is going out. Come, gather. Then we gather together and then we challenge each other. This is what it means to live out the faith. Now go and do it this week, wherever you might go. That is the calling. Listen, I know in this time, some of you are at home and, and you're at home because of, of COVID and your comfort level, no problem there whatsoever. We'll never push on that. We want to create a lot of different comfort levels. That's why first service is one thing, second service is different. We'll continue that. But this has allowed us this year to get into a comfort zone of, ah, you know, it feels more comfortable just staying home today. Or I don't have it on Sunday. We'll watch it later in the week. Not quite what Christian ecclesia could be and the power that it could be for us. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. Don't stop meeting together with other believers, which some people have forgotten, have gotten into the habit of doing. The call to gather together with believers. I know we we say, I go to church regularly. What I think, though, translates sometimes is, I go to church regularly when I don't have something else. And I was reading the stats, and I've shared it with you before, that Barna had put out there 1.8 Sundays a month is what people are coming to church. You know, that's pre-COVID, those numbers. And I thought, yeah, but not this church. That's not, I mean, that's not us. Like, I get to see you guys each week. I know, right? So I ran all the stats pre-COVID, and then in the last seven weeks or so here as people have started to come back. And you know what I found out? 47%. (laughs) 47% of services our people are in, those who would call this their home, you know, you can do the math on that. It's pretty close to 1.8, 1.8. I think 45% is 1.8. So we're, we're ahead of it by 2%. So, yeah, getting to church and being together with other believers is impactful. Here's a third thing, and this hit me hard. Swap out secular for the Christian. Swapping out the secular for the Christian Listen to what Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says. If anything is excellent or if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things, all that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. You see, this is the question I think we ask. We knee-jerk it. I do the same thing. We ask, is it bad for me to? Is it wrong for me? Is it sin if I... And the translation of that question is, how close can I kind of toe the line here without it actually being considered bad or sin or too much selfishness or whatever the phrase you might use? Here's a better question. It's asking, will this bring value to my Christian life? Will this accentuate my Christian life? Will this grow me closer to God? Will this honor God, bring glory to God's name? When we start asking that question instead of the first question we'll start to look at things very different in our life. Very different. And so when I was uh, in college, um, I I loved in in the 80s, I loved the heavy metal. Any other of the heavy metal fans here? All right, I'm going to be honest. I love the glam metal, all right? I just want to be honest because I know some of you heavy metal people just threw me out of your club. So, But love that kind of stuff, right? 
And so when I became a Christian, those albums were, I, I still had those albums. I had a couple Christian metal albums, and I still had all my, my other glam metal stuff. And I hit about 20 years old, and I'm driving down the street. I don't remember exactly where I was on the exact road, right? And I'm driving out, and I'm listening to this group. And I will not tell you the lyric that came out of this because it's really explicit, right? And I'd heard it a hundred times. But it hit me that day, and I thought, so sexually graphic. What am I listening to here? What is this that I'm listening to? And it was like God just hit me, convicted my heart right there. Like, that album needed to go for sure, at least that one, right? But then here's the phrase God hit me with. I was 20 years old. I'm 48 now, so it's been stuck with me a long time. I've had this playing in my head for 28 years. The phrase was this, Tom, you are foolish to think that you're not affected by this music. And it stuck. And I've used that in so many, Tom, you're foolish to think you're not affected by whatever, fill in the blank. And the challenge to exchange. And so for me, at that moment in my life, I started to put away those albums that did not bring glory to God, or did not help me, and I started to substitute them with other things. And Christian music is still as central today to me, though the metal, not quite as much, right? But there's still music that does that. What other area of your life, what area is God challenging you to to replace, to replace the secular for the Christian? And then here's finally, get discipled. I mean, we've been talking about this over and over. Get trained. Get built up in your faith. Let some mature Christians help you to come alongside of you. Let some Christian community that you can fellowship and interact with you challenge you. The writer of Hebrews is pretty blunt. Listen to what is written. Although you should have been teachers by now, you need someone to teach you an introduction to the basics about God's message. You have come to a place where you need milk instead of solid food. Listen, the writer is not writing this to day one Christians. Like, this isn't somebody who just became a Christian and an hour later were like, hey, what's, what's going on here? Why are you so immature, right? The assumption here is you're talking about people who had had a Christian faith for a while. And the challenge is, listen, you should be able to teach others about this by now, but you can't. We still have to talk about the basics here. What they're saying is, look, you're not putting into practice what Christianity is all about. And so that's the challenge here. And what we would say here as well is, listen, we wouldn't be talking to a brand new Christian. But many of you, I know, you might have been here in church 20 years, 30 years, a long time in your life. And the challenge is get trained up. If you've been in church a long time, you're like, I wouldn't even know how to share my faith. Get trained up. Let us teach you how to share your faith. I'm not even sure quite how to have a good, uh, quiet time with God. Let us teach you. Let us show you. What does it really mean to live a life in the Holy Spirit? Let us teach you that and what that's about and then challenge you and send you out equipped to do that. You know, I've asked you many times these three questions. It's an evaluation for ourselves to ask yourself, how long have I been a Christian? For some of you, it's been a long time, right? Second question, would I consider myself kind of a spiritual giant or at least a spiritual teacher or spiritual mentor? Most people would say, oh, no. And the third question would simply be, why not? Why not at this point? And the challenge is to get discipled, get trained up, get built up in your faith. In fact, I know before you walked in, those of you who are regular attenders here, you got a text message challenging you to sign up for our next discipleship class. 
that actually leads you through what we're talking about here this morning. And so I'm challenging you, get discipled. Get signed up for that. Some of you, I know, this is what you're thinking, because I think it in some things, right? I was watching my, my daughter uh, do a horse show on Friday morning after a week of horse camp, and then, you know, they do a, ho- a show. And it was like a 19-and-a-half-hour show. So <sighs> it's long. And, and I'm watching this. And, you know, what I was thinking is, should I start, you know, could I do a horse lesson? Could I get up there? And you know what my next thought was? I'm 48. I'm not starting out. I'm not starting that at 48 years old. Some of us, that's what it's like. We're like, I've been in church a while. I don't really know how to do it. I'm kind of embarrassed to start now. And my advice this morning would be simple. Just swallow your pride. Just suck it up. Get signed up. And let us build into you. We love you. We want to do it. And God has a great future for you as you learn more. Here's a takeaway. These are questions for your own spiritual growth this week, your own devotion times that you can take into your week. So let me be a little quick and overview these. Here's the first one. What's your excuse for not sharing Jesus? I mean, these disciples were inexperienced idiots. That's what the passage told us, right? Or at least that's what they were thought of. And yet they shared Jesus. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. And so they knew how to share what they had experienced. Here's the second one. Do people recognize that you've spent time with Jesus? Like, do they recognize that? Listen, I often will recognize a difference in somebody who has read the scriptures and somebody who is reading the scriptures. Somebody who has read it in their life, hey, you know, I've read that. Yeah, I've read the Bible. And somebody who is actively reading it as far as devotion in their life every day. You can tell the difference. You see the difference. Do people recognize when you've spent time with Jesus? And then a question of action. What would keep you from t- committing today to a daily time with Jesus if you don't have one? What about five minutes a day, same place, same time, one chapter, and then pray every day? You could write a couple notes. Here's what I learned in this passage. Here's the two or three things I'm praying for. Every day, if you're not doing anything, five minutes will feel like a long time to get and be with Jesus. And secondly, What would keep you from committing to sharing Jesus with one person, with a person every week? I'm just going to tell somebody about Jesus every week. I don't know what that would look like. You might have your story written out, and you can go share your story. You might ask them if they just want to come over and, you know, have coffee or or hang out or something and let Jesus sneak into that. You might even invite them to church. But here, again, our ultimate goal is not for you to invite people to church. It's for you to share Jesus with other people. Inviting the church is just a tool you can use as well. Well, let me pray for you. Would you bow? Father, thank you for this one verse. Lord, even if it's just me the last couple weeks studying this, I know for me it was deeply impactful. And I trust that there's at least another. And so, Father, would we take this and we would be challenged by the idea that the religious leaders who did not believe, they recognized significance because Peter and John were with Jesus. I want people to recognize that in me, Lord. I think others would join me in that. So, Lord, help us in any action step, anything that came out of this this morning that now we need to put into practice. Lord, you convict our hearts. Sometimes you convict our hearts differently. But once you convict our hearts and your Holy Spirit speaks directly to my heart, Lord, that becomes command for me. Tom, go do this. And so if there's any way the Holy Spirit convicted your heart, 
would you lead forward with a resounding yes, I will do that, Lord. Help me. And we'll trust you, Lord, for transformation that will come simply from that. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, tomorrow when you get the...